Hello and welcome to On Landscape with another lockdown podcast. Uh, I'm here with Joe Cornish and David Ward. And Joe Cornish wrote a, a nice article for us uh, called Weather Watchers for the a recent issue of On Landscape. And I thought it would be nice to chat about the weather and not necessarily the science of the weather, but how the personal experiences of the weather have guided uh, how you, maybe you use weather forecasts or or, or, or how you predict whether to go out or not, etc. So, I'll I'll start with David because I know uh, I've seen you looking at quite a few different weather forecasts when you've been out in Iceland. Um, so, how how do you go about working with the weather as a landscape photographer? <laughs> it's a re- it's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because uh, very rarely does the um, forecast actually coincide with what we get, you know, in a kind of uh, a microcosm around where we are you know you you can i i used to love it when on the weather forecast they used to do the big synoptic chart which they seem to have decided that is way too complicated for us last time i got it off the met office i had to say that i was a pilot before they let really? me access that wow. part of the website yeah i don't know why that was um so um i look at it as a general kind of trend is it going to be is it going to be dry in the morning wet in the afternoon windy whatever you know what are the conditions likely to be is it going to be better for me to stay in the mountains let's say or is it going to be better for me to be at the coast um but i but i don't try and use it for very fine-grained stuff now i know in certain circumstances say you're in the states and you're tornado um chasing that that you need very high powered gear and access to some very good kind of computational forecasting in order to be able to do that. But I think for most photographers in the landscape, if you're not actually looking to get specific weather events, but actually all you want to know is which is the area that would benefit me best to work in, in the circumstances that I'm likely to get. So if it looks like it's going to be, let's say it's going to be sunny all day, then I would want to choose somewhere probably that I, I got good shade. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I remember being in Montana a few years ago and um, looked like we were going to have a blue sky day. <clears throat> and I and I worked out that if we went to the northern range of the Tetons where we were, sorry, we're in Wyoming then, um, then, um, then we would be able to work alongside a place called Jenny Lake in the shade in the morning. And then as the sun moved around, we'd be able to do the opposite in the afternoon. So so that was a, a the kind of um, approach that I would... I would take, I guess. I know Charlie Waite used to tell a story years ago um, about he got a commission, I think, from the National Trust to photograph uh, St. Michael's Mount. And his father um, had been in the Air Force and his father had told him, well, you need to phone the Met Office and talk to a, a forecaster for, for air, um, you know, for, for pilots. Um, so he rang up this number, which I think you had to pay pay for the service, I think, probably. Um and the guy starts giving in the forecast for this region. And and then he said, but you're not a pilot, are you? And he said, how do you know? Because you're not asking what level the cloud cover is at or what wind direction is or anything like that. He said, what do you want? And he said, I want to know whether it'll be clear over St. Michael's Mount any time today. And he said, yeah, it'll be quite good for about an hour this afternoon between 2.30 and 3.30, and then the weather will come back in. And Charlie said, that's the only time the forecast has ever actually been correct. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. We're asking that, Um, you know, it's it's clearly an important part of working outdoors. And there would be times when you would look at the forecast and 
and say, I don't think it's worth my while going out because of the wind is going to be too strong or that it's going to be too wet. But I've most of the time I actually found that if you do go out, there probably will be some little opportunity if you find yourself in the right kind of um, relationship to the wind or the rain where you can still photograph. Um, yeah, so it would have so to I be a pretty pretty extreme rain forecast for you to say, let's not bother. Yeah, I mean, the the worst thing, obviously, is if it's blowing around and and the direction in which you want to shoot is also the direction of the wind, then um, then then it becomes almost impossible because you just can't keep keep it off the lens all the time. Most of the modern cameras are are not too bad at coping with with the wet these days, um, but if it's all over the lens, you you really you know you you have zero chance really to get anything usable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but being out in you know like sunshine and showers kind of weather, especially this time of year, say up where you are, Tim, and the west coast of Scotland, and you get these big squalls coming in, that can be really incredible yeah. conditions. The, the, class, so the classic fit... quotes of wait five minutes and you'll get another another weather is yeah. spot on. Yeah, there's, there's a few of those, aren't they? Uh, yeah. You know, so there's the Iceland one. If you don't like the weather now, wait five minutes; it'll be worse. Um, <laughs> there's. Uh, there's Shetland, only has two seasons, winter and July. Um, I can't remember what the other, there's a fair few of those kind of quotes. Though. Um, I mean, they're, they're, for us living in the UK, one of the wonderful things is that the weather is so changeable, yeah, we, actually. Yeah, we live in the centre of is it five different weather systems. If you're talking about maritime polar versus, uh, and from the different directions they can come in, which makes it. I was sorry. Can I can I jump in? I was just uh, just for a second uh, because I actually think that it's interesting, David. You were saying that they don't we don't get that much information from the forecasters, and I'm sure compared with what what they see and know about modelling, uh, that we don't. But we are we are increasingly, I think, getting um, more information from uh, from broadcast forecasters uh, about, say, the jet stream, uh, and in, in a general sense. And the and say the polar air masses versus the Azores high air mass, uh, the warm cold split. We've had quite a lot of that this winter actually, and that's been really interesting because the win the this winter especially it has been quite a battleground over the last uh, few weeks between the warm and the uh, cold air masses. Uh, uh, you know we see it's often at that junction that all the action takes place with snow or sleet mm. or rain or whichever side you happen to be. It's fascinating living up here. Um how many times the um, uh, we talk to our friends down south and we're getting completely the opposite weather. Either it's gorgeous sunshine up there and they're getting rain and or vice versa. There's it's definitely a line drawn around, I don't know, say the Lake District where it all switches over or the central belt. So the, I mean, what you're talking about, Joe, with the, with the air masses and, and general kind of overall patterns is actually, that's why I used to love the synoptic chart because it's more useful really. You can there's a front yeah. coming in this afternoon so you can tell that the, the weather is going to change you can't necessarily tell exactly what it's likely to do in one valley in the lakes as opposed to another valley in the lakes but you know overall what's likely to happen and and that that's more useful i think than than pretending that you have the fine-grained detail i mean i've been in places in the states where they tell you you know in in 45 minutes time this kind of weather is going to arrive because they've got a lot of land mass and a lot of stations and they can, they can give you more fine grain um, 
kind of information. And also, I think the the patterns are more predictable than than where we are here, as you say, Tim, with all of these different systems mixing in yeah. in with each other. It's a very complicated thing to try and work out. And I think a lot of people don't perhaps realise that what we see as a forecast um, is actually a sort of aggregate of lots of different modelling exercises. Yeah, I think the only um, the only real accurate forecast we get up in Scotland is maybe in the next hour or so because they, they can use uh, weather radar to spot clouds and rain and say, well, with the prevailing wind, it's going to arrive in the next 30 minutes or half an hour. Mm. But as soon as you get to the next day, it starts getting inaccurate. But how, how far ahead would you look in your forecast? Is it... um, for a... Yeah. Oh, well, go on, Joe, yeah. Well, I would. I think five days is the is the working maximum, that that where you can really say, well, it's got a it's got some chance of having some relationship to the forecast. Whereas beyond five days, I'd say it's complete nonsense. It is. It, it really is sort of guesswork beyond that. And that's not to say that sometimes, you know, if you were to look at at longer than five days. In in a in a record, as it were, it would show that some of the forecasting have been, you know, tolerably good. But so often it's completely out. Mm. So I, I just generally think, and I, I I think the perspective that forecasters tend to take is around about five days. Although having said all of that, I love watching the long term forecast, uh, which the BBC put out every day. Bless them. Um, not it's partly because it's sort of just nice watching how the weather forecasters try to sort of justify their opinions, um, you know, which are clearly, uh, you know, the, and that's often, well, at least at a, at a distance, is is what it is. But it, of course, yeah, it's giving you a, a, an approximate idea of what might be coming down the track. But often, all too often, it turns out not to be that way beyond four or five days. Yeah, I mean, for accurate, I would only say tomorrow, and even then, not necessarily in the even, afternoon even then yeah even <laughs> yeah. then it can be wrong yeah. um you know really and, and this this winter has been a great example of that you know we've had some extraordinarily <laughs> inaccurate forecasts which you know do catch you out and it's a kind of annoying uh you wake up in the morning look out the window and there's snow on the ground when you haven't been anticipating it because you think ah oh, should have been up an hour and a half earlier uh to to be out there in it but uh you know, often it's it's the opposite. They they will be over uh, optimistic if if we're describing snow. In my view, snow is something to be very excited about. Um, whereas I suppose that forecasters, well, they know people love it, but at the same time, a lot of for a lot of people, it's a big problem. Clearly, from a it's very very difficult to get around safely in the snow. Now you've mentioned there's a bit of a bias in the forecast, and you use the Mountain Weather Information Service. Uh, as part of the mm. forecasting, if it covers your area. Um, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because they've got a safety bias, so they want to try and err on the maybe slightly pessimistic side, generally. Yeah, and I'd say that that's, well, we all know the Michael Fish example, don't we, of the, the hurricane that was never predicted, uh, which I've read quite a bit about that, actually. And he blames uh, Bill Giles for that misforecast really? in any case. <laughs> Which I suppose he would do, yeah, <laughs> because it was Bill Giles's forecast that he was he was delivering. Um, anyway, but that's yes, I think on the whole, forecasting uh, is very safety, health and safety orientated. Generally, they don't always get it right in that regard, but often they over exaggerate uh, the risks that are coming. And Emwis, I'm sure, is also guilty of that. But they should be because 
you know, if you think of, of who their customers yeah. are, um, they they really do need to, uh, if, you know, if there is a bias, after all, they're modeling as well. So they're looking at several different models, presumably, and having to come up with a, you know, with a reasonable prediction based on on that, but probably with a with an eye towards health and safety. Yeah. I, I'd say that they're more accurate than the general forecast, though, especially for the, you know, the particular region. I always used to feel there was this bias which was about population density. So the like the, the, the Met Office forecast, you know, it was more accurate near large population centres than it was out in the wilds because they really didn't care, you know, so they weren't going to bother to do all of the modelling for that. Whereas, you know, MWIS is, is specifically designed for people spending time in the outdoors and, and, and I think is generally pretty accurate in terms of what you're likely um, to encounter. And I think you're right, they may be overstate the possibility of snow or high winds or heavy precipitation, but that's better than the other way around. Yeah, definitely better than the yeah. other way around. Um, and it's interesting that MWIS is just one guy. I mean, it was a it was originally just an amateur bloke who did his own forecasts, and it still is. But he's he is given a bit of funding from the government now, I think. Um, but generally, he just takes yeah. everybody else's forecasts and works out what he thinks it's going to be based on his knowledge of the mountains. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think I'd say the great pretty, thing about pretty accurate. I'd say. I, well, no, I I agree. I mean, that's why I express, expressed a slight bias towards it in the, <laughs> in the article. Um, and, and also, the nice thing about it is that the the way it's I mean, it's obviously focused very much on Scotland, with you know, with a sort of bit of a nod to the northern areas of England uh, and and Snowdonia. Um, but Scotland is is the is the real area of expertise, I think, for for MWIS. and the the specific information that we get is useful for photography mm. uh, so particularly you know the amount of the uh, amount of cloud and the direction and and the speed of wind at, at mid to high altitudes can make a big difference you know and certainly affect the light and, and so on so yeah there is um i i find it good it'll give you information about uh, you know can you expect a deep frost in the valleys mm. uh you know early in the morning and that sort and of cl- thing, which, cloud free monroes which can be useful as well yeah, very much so. Very much so. So I I like it, but just mainly because of the information. Whereas you know the general general weather forecast, they're not interested in. Clearly, not interested in photographers, um, and and probably not that interested in mountaineering either. So <clears> it's <throat> it's really getting about. <laughs> you you'll remember Joe that we used to have a meteorologist who used to travel with us a few times who um who always used to say that he was paid to lie, convincingly. Um, <laughs> Perhaps, you know, I, I suppose, I suppose um, it's quite similar to politicians. Oh, step away <laughs> no. from that subject. <laughs> yeah, steady, David. That's <clears throat> definitely dodgy territory at the moment, I'd say. I think one of the things people forget <clears throat> is how often with our prevailing westerly winds that the, the small inaccuracies in where the weather will hit can make massive differences in forecasts. And I've seen this um, when I've been, we were going to camp on top of Benacralast. Uh, with some friends who had visited, and we parked up um, on the A82, and on the looking back towards Rannoch Moor, on the left-hand side it was just pitch black and pouring down with rain, and on the right-hand side it was glorious sunshine, uh, and it was just a weather stream that was heading towards us, and it stayed like that for an hour while we waited. Um, so if you if you'd have been one side of it, you'd have been cursing that this sunny forecast 
had gone wrong and vice versa, uh, just because the weather forecast had shifted or where the weather came in shifted by a mile or two. Mm. And the same goes, I suppose, for the snow I mean, forecast that you may have had on the boundary of these warm and cold uh, masses. I mean, I think especially in the mountains, that there's so, so many variables and the actual specific character of the light uh, it is is so specific to you know the given weather and uh, and the topography that uh, it, although a forecast is useful in terms of preparing clothing and so on, that's often the limit of it because you can usually make photographs, interesting photographs, by responding to what you see. And so you know there is that. I think that's why I'd always <laughs> if you if you have time to go out and and do some photography and some walking, do it. Just get out anyway. Um, why? Yeah. Why sit at home? Uh, so, and especially it, you know, given given the wide range of, of subject matter that that there is different times of year and so on. So that's an interesting one, isn't it? When people are um, focused on a particular goal, so you know, like the sunrise photography, let's say, or mist in the valley, that kind of thing, and and um, it leads to an expectation of what photograph is that they're going to make. And they might go out, and those conditions did, that they were expecting did not do not prevail, and feel very kind of let down by it. But but really, they should go out, and whatever is in front of them is what they should use to make a photograph. You know, it, it shouldn't. It. I've had that experience very strongly um, in Norway a couple of times, um, where we, we'd be sitting eating dinner, and you're looking out the window because sun sunsets at past 11 at night and looking at it and thinking oh yeah i think it'd be okay i think it'd be good and then we went out um and a and cloud rolled in um and there was no sunset but the con but the it was really moody it was fantastically moody conditions and and but i couldn't manage to motivate the group in the, the workshop group because they had in their minds that what they were going to get was a sunset you know it was going to be this you know spectacular light over the arctic ocean and they and they couldn't get past that uh so i think it's a it's a it can be a, a a rod we can make it a rod for our own backs by concentrating too much on the forecast and and hoping for particular conditions i think i sense a new book david zen and the art of landscape photography a new or, book the difficult the difficult third book but yeah i mean i, I just i just think that adapting isn't that isn't that a big part of the of the uh, the whole kind of experience, a sort of philosophical frame of mind that's required to really enjoy your landscape photography uh, mm. and and make the most of it. Constantly adapting to conditions, yeah, yeah. But you get lots of um, five minute weather. A friend of mine used to call it years ago. So you're you're walking across the the, the fell and um, you see some really interesting light off in the distance. But you need to walk for another five minutes before you get to the point at which you could photograph that. So you walk, and when, by the time you get there, it's gone. Or it's five minutes the other way around. So you stand there waiting for the light, and it doesn't happen. So you walk off, and then you look back, and the light has arrived when you've walked off. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're always five minutes out from... And, and that that's kind of classic weather, isn't it? That sunshine and showers weather. You, you never really know when it's going to be right. So you're better off actually finding somewhere that's a good location and just staying and seeing what happens to the light and, and working with what you've got um, and hope that it turns up well when i when i started using a large format camera that was one of the interesting surprises was because 
lots of people said, well, you know, you'll miss all these weather opportunities. Um, and as it happened, because I'd set up the camera and sit and wait, yeah, I might miss a single opportunity, but you tend to wait around for something to happen. You know, you've got an idea mm. that something might something might happen, and that that worked out a lot better than I thought it would at first. So yeah, it's a similar thing with aurora, isn't it? So there were, there's some people talk about chasing the aurora, which is kind of difficult when it's 75 miles up in the in the outer atmosphere. But um, but really, what they're chasing is gaps in the cloud. Yeah. Um, but quite often you're better off staying where you are because you can spend all night, and I've done these trips, you spend all night going round trying to find that bloody gap. But And then you get back to where you started off from, and there's a lovely big gap in the clouds. Where you, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just kind of... It, it's not it's not always a productive approach to try and chase it. And I understand with storm chasers, you know, you're waiting for a supercell to, to come through and tornadoes could touch down kind of anywhere um so you're it's it makes some sense but i know of people who've done those trips who travel thousands of miles in 10 days and never actually seen a tornado even though there were during that period tens or even maybe hundreds of tornadoes but they've missed all of them just by happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah not i don't think five four is good for tornadoes Mm, no probably yeah My, my little article on tripods and stability may be null and void at that point in time. Suction cups, I don't think even would do it, would they, really? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> out, out of interest, yeah. in what weather forecasts, websites, or, or tools do you use, Joe? Well, MWIS uh, is the first one that springs to mind, uh, but it's not great for Northern England. So in Scotland, that would be my, my always my first choice. I do, I do still use the BBC as a sort of go-to uh, they they use Meteor Blue, I believe, uh, as as their main source. And while it's it's no more accurate than anyone else's, it's quite easy to understand. It's probably like anything else; it's what you get used to. I look at Meteor Blue sometimes, uh, which is a very different graphical kind of explanation. And again, I've got no no evidence that 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 particular pattern or that particular layout is any more accurate. I'm always interested in the idea of a kind of cloud uh, prediction forecast, and the, and the the BBC have one of those. So if you you, you can run a little graphic which that runs for about thirty six hours ahead, in theory, it's completely wrong, but it, it kind of it kind of encourages you to think, oh well, it might it might clear then, and it's because not that you want clear cloud, you want it, if it if you're looking at. at yeah, at, at landscape outdoor, you know, out in out in the open landscape photography, then what what I usually find the most productive is is when there's plenty of cloud but broken, yeah. so that there's more interesting light. Um, no cloud is horrible usually from my point of view, and complete overcast is fine. But I would more likely go to the woods or uh, work on details by the sea or something like that. So. Um, yeah, I, can, I find I can work in most most conditions. Bother, but yes, the the clouds are, are, are critical. They are they are what make it. Do you bother with any sort of short term forecasts, like checking in the middle of the day for what might happen in the afternoon? I personally do because uh, I still like working when there's the, the sun is lower in the sky. It does tend to help with in terms of color and so on. And because I um, I love working locally, you know we have lovely hills nearby and 
woodland as well. Um, and I think it's a nice way to keep in practice and get some exercise. Um, the, our, our hills pretty much face west, uh, west and north for the most part. Uh, so if, uh, if it looks like there could be some interesting light later on, it's, it's very easy to either walk out or a short drive and then a walk to get up onto the hill. So, you know, which I always love to do. Um, if conditions look good, you can do that all the year round. Obviously, there's certain times of year when it's better than others, so it's more interesting, and the colours tend to be more uh, more interesting. But um, even even in the middle of the summer, I can you know, which is my least favourite time of year, I can usually find things to do out in the hill. And, and David, what tools, websites, etc. Tools, um, uh, like Joe MWIS, if I'm up in Scotland, uh, but I do use that in in uh, the Northern National Parks as well, I would look at MWIS, I think. Um, and then um, a variety of different online sources. I don't know. I've, I've, Joe talked about shopping for the um, uh, the forecast that you like in his article, and I suppose I'm guilty of doing that. Yeah. Oh, no, that one's good. I like that one. I'll agree with that one. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got the Meteo Blue app, um, which is quite good. Um, I quite like that because of some. Uh, it's got quite a good um, rainfall prediction. Yeah, just because you're an hour ahead, which when you're out and about can be very useful. If you think oh, I'm going to get a little gap now, that'll be worthwhile. Be going out. They, um, they have the app called Rain Today. I think is the one I use, um, which gives you a little. Right. It gives you a, like a satellite view prediction of where the rain's going to be, which is pretty accurate. Yeah, the Meteo Blue one's not bad. You can see where it flips over from actual recorded to yeah um, uh, to predicted sometimes because the re- the recorded one is kind of a bit more chaotic, and then it suddenly goes, "Oh no, it's all going to move in this direction now." <laughs> yes, <laughs> so you can see the you see the tipping point. But you know, it's 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 on a phone. It's not on a supercomputer. So yeah. <laughs> And then uh, some of it is just kind of, um, I suppose, if I know a place well, I might, I might think, well, I think when the weather's like this, it might be good to go down there um, because that will be sheltered from this wind direction, and I'm, I might not pay too much attention to a particular forecast. Um, having, having, been out, having been out in the landscape for a long time, both of you, or a lot of experience, do you start to see? Can you look at what's got happening? Uh, at that point in time and predict something in the future or is that out of the question really actually that that's a that's a great question because i think that it's a sort of thing you you wish that you know with 40 years of experience you you would be able to predict absolutely everything that's coming down uh down the road and the truth is that having got 40 years of it, of experience i now know that i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i you know i think obviously there are some types of weather that are, are predictable and and you 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 can feel well within an hour there will be some really interesting lies and so on and it's always really really satisfying when that happens but i doubt that it happens more than 50 percent of the time that those predictions happen i do i i mean personally i think i'm just uh a, a, a uh, I have this sort of optimistic streak which i think does probably help me as a landscape photographer because it keeps me going back in the hope that i'm going to get a nice photo but uh, but it, the optimism is also not very scientific. So I think you, inevitably a lot of the time I don't make it. See, as as a, as a pessimist, I think I think pessimism is much better because you're never disappointed. It's, it's, never, <laughs> it's never as bad as you thought it was going to be. How do how do you motivate yourself <laughs> to get out there? That's the problem, isn't it? Then. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, I don't think my choices are very weather driven because because a lot of my pictures are made uh, in the shade or in overcast conditions. Um, so I'm not particularly driven by weather. Most of, I'm not looking to mm. include a great deal of sky a lot of the time. And I mean, I mean, if it is nice when I'm out there, then I, then I'll shoot it. But um, uh, mostly, I'm shooting details, or um, so I'm, I'm not particularly kind of influenced um by those those concerns um i mean i i would look at it and think well if it's gonna if i'm gonna have 50 millimeter of rain today and it's gonna be a, a northerly gale force four that's no, sorry gale force seven i'm not gonna go out you know it's not it's not gonna be worthwhile probably but um otherwise if i've got a day and i feel that it i'd be nice to go out and take some pictures i'd go out and take some pictures and it's been difficult during lockdown I think um, for a lot of people, for the sort of um, uh, just getting motivated to be creative, I think has been very difficult. Um, so it was very nice when we started getting the cold weather and it and, and frost. If I if I look at a, a forecast, then I think ah, it's going to be frosty for a few days. Then that probably makes me uh, much more keen on going out to take pictures because uh, there are almost always magical things that you can photograph in in frost. And I know a few places in my local area here where there are frost hollows which don't get any um, sunlight at this time of year. So I know that if I've had multi-day frost, that those places could have some really interesting small details to, to work on. So this is um, where the local knowledge of the area is more important and the weather forecast in many ways. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, in, in those sort of, I mean, what would you, your question about would I know what's going to happen with them? No, I absolutely wouldn't. But, you know, I've I've talked to farmers who've worked the same patch of land f for 40 or 50 years and who's probably whose parents worked the, the patch before them who seem to very, be very confident of what's going to happen weather-wise, seeing what it's like in the morning. And even the weather law, you know, the red sky at night and all that kind of stuff is, is actually built on... Um, yeah, sort of aggregate of of but what happens when a frontal system normal westerlies, yes, yeah. Um, so so there's definitely um, oh the, the cows lying down, it's going to rain, is nonsense. But um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, but there are there are I think it, some of those people probably do have a sense that if the wind's blowing from that direction and the compass and and the and the clouds look like that, then this afternoon we're likely to get rain or wind or it's going to clear you know i think there's probably is some sense of that if you spent your entire yeah. life outside in the same mm -hmm. small location um I, I, but i certainly wouldn't now, the only time i the only time i'd say that i could predict the weather accurately was when i lived in botswana because for six months of the year there was no <laughs> rain at all <laughs> well, <laughs> and I, it was well, what I <laughs> it, it is actually interesting isn't it sorry tim j just briefly you know since david mentioned botswana and I, th I do think a lot of countries have very boring weather and we are very fortunate in that respect because you know what whether whether you like uh the light or not the you you know you do build up a sense of what a, an amazingly three-dimensional um kind of experience the weather is you know there are many different layers of of uh, of weather different humidity and different wind direction even at different heights um, mm. which are driving clouds in different direction and and that you know makes it endlessly unpredictable and therefore kind of fascinating mysterious and 
keeps us in our place, as it were, in terms of, you know, you, you have to be humble when you look at the weather because you can't predict it. You know, you just have to respond to, you know, what you see and how you feel. I mean, there are good um, things and bad things about weather patterns being very fixed. So in, in, in Namibia, uh, there's, a I don't know, about 12 weeks of the year where all the rain happens. Um, but generally speaking, you, you know what's going to happen. So it's going to be dry in the morning and the clouds will build during the day and you'll get thunder showers during the afternoon. So you can actually work out what you're going to do in those environments very, very accurately. You know what, what where it would be good to be at different times of day. Um, Botswana, yeah, there's, uh, you don't need to know that you'll get rain necessarily. So you 10 months of the year, maybe you can guarantee that it's going to be sunny variable amounts of cloud but probably no cloud for about eight months of the year um so that maybe that's why i didn't take very many photographs in botswana <laughs> as, a, as a last sort of question for both of you i know i know um joe your son sam is involved in uh weather and climate uh well, oceans and climate let's say do you, what do you see for the uk in terms of the way climate change will affect it because a lot of people read the global warming thing as saying, oh, we're just going to get warmer weather. And I don't think that's quite true, is it? Joe? That's a really interesting question. And I must say that every time I have a, an in-depth uh, conversation with Sam recently, I'm getting more and more worried because his, his research is uh, showing that, I mean, he's specifically focused on the Arctic, on the, is it the Laptev Sea and the Beaufort Gyre. Um, specific parts, Canadian and Russian Arctic. Um, and the modeling he's doing is showing some quite alarming patterns. Um, it both from, a, you know, if you look back, look forward uh, and do the, the mathematical modeling, um, the rate of Arctic warming is is accelerating mm. uh, currently and, it, and it, it's going to continue to accelerate. And the, the, that's a big worry. I, th I think that is slightly different, though, to what we'll experience in the UK. Um, the, the UK, I think, is in a in a notably, I, I don't know, I feel quite opt, sort of optimistic in the sense that, you know, of all the big worries that climate change has for us, uh, I, I think uh, to, to live in an island nation in the north, in the northeast Atlantic on the edge of, of Western Europe is relatively favourable because of the moderating effect of, of the different oceanic forces around us, maritime um, both the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation and the type of uh, continental balancing high pressure systems that we get. On the whole, through winter and summer, uh, we'll probably continue to get rainfall um, in relatively unpredictable ways, but and probably more than we want some of the time. And we'll also get droughts, but I don't think they'll be prolonged in the way that they mm. they have been in some parts of the world, California, Australia parts of Africa, which have suffered so much, you know, in the recent, in recent years. Um, so optimistic about that, but, but certainly, um, yeah, very, very concerned uh, about, uh, about what's coming down the track. Uh, and I think we all have to be. So I think that the technological change that's required, I know it's a different issue and a different conversation, but we really, really need to be doing everything we can to, uh, you know, both in our own personal lives and probably political uh, kind of pressure where we can where we can build it, whether it's in our community or locally or whatever, to try to encourage our politicians to, you know, to keep moving in the right direction 
to mitigate and change. Because it is, it is a very unpredictable system, isn't it? I mean, really, a lot of this is about um, putting more energy into the atmosphere and trying to predict how that heat will is, change. Heat is energy, yeah. Tim. Exactly, yes. And, and it, it is inherently very unpredictable. Um, you're right. But we're already seeing what happens with climate change. And I think it'll only just get more so, so long as we keep putting more and more carbon and, and other uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So, you know, it's it's all the... There is, there is hope. Um, there are possibilities. Um, it's just that the rate of, you know, there's still too much business as usual baked in i think in terms of what we can do as photographers it's actually it's still great being a landscape photographer there's lots to photograph associated with the weather and climate um good creative challenges you can still just go out and enjoy using your camera but you can also try and work out how to respond to it and that's something that i'm trying to think more about at the moment have you looked at the the um the way climate change might affect things because one of the things i i looked at potentially david was it was that we're on the same level as in Newfoundland in terms of um aren't we about the same as the bottom of Hudson Bay I think isn't London the same as the bottom of Hudson's Bay yeah I think it is yeah, yeah. We're, we're quite a lot further it's... north than most people sort of imagine we are I think um yeah I mean I don't know that I, I don't know as much about it as as Joe does uh I mean I've read various things over the years I think the one thing that um we can be sure of is that um if you're going to get a change from one stable state of climate to another stable state of climate that will involve a lot of chaotic um conditions in the in-between uh we're quite good in our position in that we are in a temperate zone but i think we're going to get more extreme weather in terms of rainfall especially i think where we are i did um agreed i looked at the history yeah, yeah. of uh, winters um in scotland i was just interested in in whether things were going to uh, we're ever going to get some really cold winters again. And I think this mm. recent patch of weather has shown that, yes, we will. It'll just be less predictable, possibly. And and maybe the extremes, maybe we'll get some winters where we don't see any snow and then we'll have a winter where it's incredibly cold. So the variability may be increased. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's true. Yeah. Sorry, just to, uh, you know, just to emphasise that point, you know, what one of the things that seems clear is, it, is if you have uh, patterns where... Uh, the, the the wind is constantly bringing in Atlantic weather. We'll always have mild conditions, but it is possible uh, that a particular type of weather setup could bring very cold conditions, uh, with you know with high pressure over the over the continent and driving. Um, well, we, as the well-known beast from the east of 2018, uh, we had a smaller version I think in 2019 as well. You know those sorts of of setups could potentially bring quite a lot of cold weather our way and that might happen more frequently but it's always going to be these more extreme events that are uh you know we we cannot predict what's going to happen with the best will in the world no well no and and the, and the climate scientists can't predict more than trends really i mean yes we know it's it's warming but they can't predict that kind of fine grain um information because it because it's all based on chaos theory sensitive dependence on initial conditions and and that changes very quickly with each iteration of the um, of the formulation of it. So, yeah, there's enormous variability. Uh, the, the, I mean, what what's particularly interesting to me is the you know just hearing uh, bits and pieces of what Sam's doing um, is that you realise that the Arctic and the Antarctic in the Southern Hemisphere they're like very very critical engines of of weather. And even though we tend to think of our 
you know, the Coriolis effect being a very dominant force and uh, from the mid latitudes or the lower mid latitudes and uh, from driven by the equator. I mean, the, the whole thing is such a, a fascinating system, but ice production in the Arctic is very, very important in as a moderator uh, of Earth's climate. And the fact we've had this relatively stable climate for 10,000 years, um, that's that's something we we have taken for granted. All pre, all previous generations have pretty much taken it for granted, even though scientists of several generations ago were already warning about what happens when you put more and more carbon into the atmosphere. But now that we see it actually happening, um, it's become much more real. Um, what what we don't know is when ice the ice factories in in the Arctic start to change in their behavior and break down, which is the work that Sam's doing, um, what that might mean, whether it will either be a moderating force or potentially lead to a tipping point going the other way, where you might have a very rapid acceleration of, of heat globally. Yeah, because all, all the methane that's um, trapped in the um, tundra and the, and the deep sea um, could make it change very rapidly once that's released into the, into the atmosphere. Yeah, and there there are uh, I mean there have been some fascinating work done on paleoclimate and how there have been these periods of very rapid change, uh, which also is is accompanied by massive habitat change, change in in flora and fauna, uh, in the geological record. Um, I mean I just think it's breathtaking that that you can work that stuff out, but that gives us insights into what might happen, and certainly it's a it's a warning um, for what, what might be coming down the track. No hippos and mammoths coming back to North Yorkshire, though. <laughs> well, possibly not in our lifetimes, anyway. <laughs> woolly rhinos. I liked woolly rhinos. They were good. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for both of you, David and Joe, for that. Uh, and we'll hope for a, a few nice frosty days in the next few months. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. Thanks, Tim. Bye.